Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Law Review is Megan Whiteside. She's a mom to two toddler boys, an avid podcaster, law professor, and oh, by the way, a trial lawyer with Brown and Barron in Baltimore. Like most trial lawyers I've interviewed on the podcast, her practice is focused on protecting the rights of injured parties and their families. She received her BA from the University of California and her JD from American University, Washington College of Law. After law school, she was a law clerk in the Circuit County Court for Montgomery County, Maryland, and thereafter did medical malpractice defense work prior to switching to the right side now. She's an adjunct professor in the trial advocacy program for American University, Washington College of Law. She teaches scientific evidence and expert testimony She is the host of the Mom, Life, and Law podcast, which focuses on content supporting lawyer moms. So Megan, before getting into all the law stuff, I understand that you are a marathoner. Uh, I'm an avid cyclist and have done a bunch of racing in centuries and love the getting out there on the road and just losing myself in the effort and I'm curious, as for you, what is what is it that makes you passionate about running and, and actually doing marathons? Which, by the way, I can't imagine running a marathon. Even though I've done 100 miles, 100 plus miles on my bike still, the idea of running that distance just blows my mind. You know, it's funny that you ask that. I'm a, a very competitive person, which I think makes me a great trial lawyer. And it's sort of a both a competition with myself. It's something that I love that challenge. Um, and it's a great foil to the stress of trial work. Um, and, and frankly, parenthood and all that life has to have those moments of um, calm and quiet. Uh, I often run without music where it's just sort of to be present in my thoughts and have that sort of time to myself um, has, been, has been truly helpful in my career. But I still don't understand how you can be a mom to two toddlers, a podcaster, a professor, and a trial lawyer, and still find time to be in good enough shape to run marathons. That's incredible. Oh, I thank you for the compliment. That means a lot. I, um, you know, when you are excited about something and you prioritize it, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and you'll often see me running, pushing a double stroller with my two boys, um, or switching off. My husband is also an avid runner, um, and you know, I, 
I am so grateful and so blessed to have an amazing and true partner. Um, and both he and I help each other prioritize our passions in life. Um, and yeah, where there's a will, there's a way. It's not easy, uh, but I, I definitely enjoy what I choose to do. Yeah, I, I prioritize cycling because for me, it, it is just such an incredible uh, escape from all the pressure and, and everything that, that you have to deal with on a day in, day out basis. So uh, I get that completely. And uh, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and it was um, a Medal of Honor winner who threw himself on a grenade in Afghanistan to save one of his fellow Marines. And he was talking about spending three years in the hospital and this idea of just being able to walk again, which then the idea was, okay, if I can walk, then I can run a marathon. And he ran a marathon uh, after going through what sounded like a, just an incredibly tough and difficult uh, rehabilitation from all the injuries he suffered. And, uh, you know, that, that passion for doing those sorts of things is something I identify. It sounds like you identify with it too. So very cool that we have that in common. So um, I wanted to ask you uh, before we, we get into some of the meat of this about the single biggest reason for you making the practice of law your career and becoming a trial lawyer. Yeah, it's um, I'm one of those odd folks that knew I wanted to be a litigator from my teens. Um, I got it in my mind. It must have been 15 or 16 years old that I was going to be a litigator that tried cases in court. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. Um, and I credit that both with sort of my competitive spirit and drive and some really wonderful role models um, in practicing attorneys who volunteered their time with my high school mock trial team. And so I did mock trial in high school, I did it in college, I did it in law school, and I now am honored to be a coach myself um, and a trial advocacy professor. But it's just amazing when you find something that combines your passions and your talents and that art of storytelling and advocating for someone, I knew, you know, whomever I advocated for, I knew I was going to be doing a service for that person um, or entity. Um, and as you said, I've now made it to the right side. I, I, I got a sense of what that was like um, in insurance defense, and that was not for me. Uh, and But now being able to tell someone's story, to advocate for someone in a crisis is a true privilege. And so I set my sights on that as a teen and sort of tailored everything I did in my education to get me here. And it is being a trial lawyer is one of the greatest professions there is, in my opinion. It's really a, an honor and a joy to get to do this work. It's funny. I, I was the exact opposite. So I, uh, I was a psychology major undergraduate and didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated with that degree, but knew I had to get more schooling and uh uh, a friend and an advisor said, why don't you think about law school? And I was like, hmm, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and there you go, you know, so never, but, you know, I did not have any any role models, but my parents uh, just graduated high school. Neither of them went to college, so I didn't have that sort of, you know, role model growing up. But it's funny how it, sometimes you, you either know or you just fall into something that you absolutely love because I all the things that you've talked about are things that I love about not only what I get to do in my law practice, which I have separate from Synergy, but also what Synergy does is that idea of being able to help and advocate for people, whether it's 
reducing liens or you know helping protect their recovery all those things are things that i think go go hand in hand uh with you know all the things that are great about being a trial lawyer so it's a privilege to me and an honor that we get to assist those folks in in a time that is usually very difficult time for for those people um so i wanted to ask you um and and um it's it's sort of a little bit of a taboo subject but you know the practice of law specifically trial law is really male dominated and um talked to a number of trial lawyers um who are female and they've talked about this idea of gender bias and you know things that they've experienced in their practice can you talk about being a woman in a male dominated profession and the top couple of challenges that that has presented for you certainly and talking about this is something i'm happy to do uh, because i think that the more that we talk about it the more that we bring awareness to it the more opportunities that we create to drive change and so being a uh, woman litigator is at times a non-issue that I don't think about. And then there are times where it's, you know, you're just smacked in the face, figuratively speaking, um, whether that's um, sexist comments or, or sexually harassing comments from opposing counsel, um, whether that is a fear of talking about certain topics, um, you know, within this profession for fear of, you know, not getting opportunities to advance or to say first chair at a trial. Um, I've had all sorts of different types of experiences um, that, you know, and if we look at the, the statistics, right, the number of women in partnership positions or leadership positions in law firms generally has barely moved in the last 20 years. And so if we don't talk about this, uh, it, those statistics are also going to barely move 20 years from now. Um, and it's not just a saying that there's an old boys club. Right, that that is sort of how certain people advance in the legal profession, and that's not just in you know plaintiff trial lawyer firms, right? And so I think that um, it can't just be a tagline on a website or something that firms say in hiring that we value um, women lawyers, that we value diversity. It has to be backed up with action. Right. So, you know, um, creating mentorship opportunities and driving change is something that I think all firms can do. Have you seen anything progressive being done in, in your experience with the different groups that you're a part of or in your own practice? Well, I feel very fortunate to be at the firm I'm at. Um, and I think that it is possible um, for firms to uh, hire women lawyers, promote women lawyers, and to really um, build an inclusive community. Uh, and I think that it just, it has to be um, a wake-up call that, that every firm take a look at 
who they're hiring, how they're hiring people, um, and the efforts that they're doing to seek a bigger pool of applicants, if you will. Um, and I also think that having conversations like we're having now, or doing the work that you know some of my my colleagues and mentors are doing, you know, you and I um, talked about, you know, before we jumped on here, um, trial advocacy consulting and training LLC. My mentor and dear friend has started a company and puts on a training twice a year for women litigators, right? to not only create a safe space where women can and build their skill, but also start to create networks. Um, and what I have seen, especially during the pandemic, is that creating a network of colleagues, and, and it's during the pandemic, it happened over LinkedIn. I mean, it's amazing the connections that women lawyers are making with each other, with men in our profession, across industries. Um, to help create opportunities for discussions like this and to drive change, but it really is going to take firms making a commitment in their hiring and their promotion practices that's really going to drive a change. Well, so since you brought it up, I was going to ask you about uh, trial advocacy, advocacy, consulting, and training and what exactly that is and why it's important to you. So why don't we talk about that since you mentioned it? Sure. So my company that I started during the pandemic, Mom Life and Law Events LLC, I put on my podcast, as you mentioned, and I also am passionate about partnering with other women and putting on events myself um, to advance women in our profession. And so um, Elizabeth Lippi is the executive director of TACT. Uh, for short, and she puts on a program twice a year called For Women by Women, and I have sponsored it. My company has sponsored it, um, and it's a two-day trial advocacy training that brings some of the best women litigators in the country together, and that's you know practicing lawyers and directors of trial advocacy program at top law schools across the country um, to teach trial advocacy skills in CLE lecture format and then have breakout sessions where Women litigators as the trainers, as the experts, are helping the attendees who are who are women litigators to actually practice what they've learned. And it's a combination of creating that safe space to be vulnerable enough to try new things and having the right mouthpiece in terms of giving feedback. Um, I, I can tell you from personal experience, you know, starting in law school, I had one trial advocacy class, and I have to say my alma mater is fantastic. American University has a fantastic trial advocacy program and really set me up for success with the offerings that uh, I was able to take in law school to learn how to be a litigator. But I had one class where my, my two professors were men and all of my classmates ended up being men. How that worked out, um, that I was the only woman in the room for that semester, I'm not quite sure, but that's how it worked out. And, you know, I, I told you I knew I wanted to be a litigator from, from my teens. And so I took those classes seriously. I loved it. I dove in. I pretended those fake case files were real. And I got up there to practice my skills. And I actually had professors tell me I couldn't do certain things because I'm a woman. You can't say it like that because you're a woman. Or as a woman, you can't be doing it like this. And I thought, I, I literally had to look around me and go, did you, you know, I'm thinking to myself, did, did everybody hear that? Did that actually happen, you know, in this day and age? And, and granted, that was 10, 12 years ago now, but still, it, it, it shouldn't be happening. Yeah. And so if that's happening in law schools, it's happening in law firms. And I know it's happening in law firms because I've had conversations with women about it. 
um, conversations with women who are passed up from first chair experience, from oral argument experience, for a male colleague, um, and being told they have to speak a certain way, dress a certain way, it's still happening. Um, and so to be able to partner with a woman litigator, and, and Liz is the director of trial advocacy at Temple Law School. I mean, she knows her stuff. Um, and for her to create this opportunity for women litigators, when I heard she was doing it, I said, how can I support you? How can I be involved? Um, and so it's, it's something that I'm so grateful she came up with the idea and had um, the, the guts to put it out there because I think that it's still in 2021 um, is difficult to talk about and to be vulnerable enough to say this is still a huge problem and I'm going to do something about it. It's great that, that you're partnering to form that safe place because that conceptually, this idea that somehow there's some gender-based limitations on what a lawyer can or cannot do in a courtroom is insanity. Uh, it's that That's just such backward thinking that it blows my mind that anything like that uh, could be uttered at this point, you know, or even 10 years ago, frankly. I, it just, that blows me away. So um, I love the fact that we're getting to talk about it and hopefully that that is just gone because it's got no place in, in what any of us do, no matter and what I, profession. And I will say that I think it's even harder for the intersection of women lawyers who are people of color, right? They, there are so many conversations that I think we still need to keep having um, and there needs to be um, more of a discussion of when colleagues or partners hear or see their colleagues or partners saying or doing things along these lines, um, it's no longer okay to just say, okay, well, that wasn't me saying that. I don't believe that. I don't. I think that we need to start having these discussions on the small scale so that we can make a change on a large scale. And that, you know, as my male colleagues, I know so many decent, hardworking, supportive allies, but it's going to take all of them being comfortable, being uncomfortable and having these uncomfortable conversations to really drive the change. So we don't have to have four women by women, right, to create that safe space. That's the goal. Well, so let's transition to talk about um, this idea that is at the center of your podcast, which is celebrating lawyer moms with the Mom Law and Life podcast. And I, I saw from doing my research that the idea behind it is helping lawyer moms thrive. But what really um, really jumped out at me was uh, you were talking about, I think it was on the website, uh, this idea of mothering while lawyering expected to mother as if they don't have a job and lawyer as if they have no children. And there was a something that I, I is a direct quote that I, I saw on your website, being a mother doesn't seem to align with our profession's values being a mother is treated as a weakness and a burden. Just talk a little bit about that. Unpack all of that because it's it, that to me really, I was just like, wow. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack, but I think the, the easiest place to start is um, maternity leave or parental leave, right? Um, and the notion that that is an inconvenience firms, 
firms that don't have paid parental leave policies, right? If we start at that beginning, it's very clear that, and it's not limited to the legal profession, right? This is this is a nationwide issue, um, but it, it needs to start with parental leave and valuing employees, and and that a place to you know maternity leave and paternity leave, right? As parents, being a parent doesn't detract from your dedication to your job, to your ability to do your job, and to your desire to advance within the profession, and so separate and apart from not having adequate leave in all places. And I will say that I am so grateful when I had my two sons, I was at a different firm at the time and I was offered 12 weeks of paid maternity leave at my full salary. And I am so grateful and I'm also so angry that that is not the norm. In fact, that is rare in the conversations that I've had with, with lawyer moms. And so when, I don't know a single lawyer mom who has not had a moment of pause to think, should I talk about my kids? Should, or when am I going to tell my employer that I'm expecting? Or having some sort of fear that that's gonna negatively impact their career and their career trajectory. And if we look at the number of women lawyers or women litigators who have been first chair at a trial, it's extremely low as compared to our male colleagues. But you look at the numbers graduating law school and it's almost 50-50. In fact, I think there are more women graduating than men. And there has to be this ongoing discussion, I think society-wide, that there can be women, and there are women, who we are super passionate about our jobs, and we also are mothers, and are super excited about that role, and they don't detract from each other. Um, I've had plenty of instances and conversations with opposing counsel or at bar association events where it's, well, who's taking care of your kids? Oh, well, are you going to be able to do that? You know, late deposition of an expert, um, making assumptions. So they're from offhand comments to big issues like parental leave, the juxtaposition of being a passionate woman litigator and a devoted mother, they seem inconsistent. And I, I think that we, we can do better. I'm curious um, about the topic of balance, because I had a conversation uh, with another female trial lawyer, and she was talking about that there were times in her life um, between being a mom and, and a lawyer just being out of balance, for example, because she was in trial and it was all consuming and really you know, at that time she was out of balance, that there's always sort of just this imperfect balance. How, how do you view that? I don't think work-life balance exists. I think it's an impossible standard uh, meant to make women feel bad about themselves, <laughs> really. Because in what world do we ever hear anyone ask our male colleagues about their work-life balance? Oh, how are you able to balance fatherhood with your profession, right? You never, never, never hear it. And I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There are times, especially when I'm in trial, when I barely see my kids for that trial prep to trial period. But this is a profession I've chosen. And I have had conversations with my spouse about what that looks like. And these were conversations before we had children, right? 
And that's a decision that I freely made and that we freely made as a couple. And I, I am grateful to have a partner in this. There are many women who are, are single parents, but you know, if you have a partner and you and your partner make that decision and you have a partner who's a, you know, a, a co-primary parent, it's not just me, but my, my husband is completely capable of taking care of our boys. The fact that I get questions or society asks questions of women about balance to me is not helpful. Right? It's going to be out of balance. There's sometimes where my family's got to take priority to my job. And I am so grateful to be at a firm that values family. And should I need to, to do that, then that's fine. If I need to go to doctor's appointments and dentist appointments, it's a non-issue. right? Or if in my family we choose that my husband's going to handle that, it's a non-issue. Um, and so for women out there to worry about, oh, on, you know, on social media and this perfectly curated profile of my friend, she seems to have it all together. None of us have it all together, right? There's no balance. There's sometimes that works take, there's are sometimes that work takes priority and there's sometimes that family takes priority. And that's a very individual decision. And I believe in helping women let go of the shame on that, right? I love being a trial lawyer. And if that means sometimes that work takes priority, that's okay. I don't need to, to feel guilt or shame. Um, so yeah, I don't think work-life balance exists. Well said, but, and that leads me to the next question, which is something in doing my research, I, I saw you talk about a, a journey to fulfillment and success and embracing motherhood as a superpower and feeling worthy and empowered. I'm curious though, if that was learned through kind of the, the experiences that you had with going, well, balance really doesn't exist and I have to embrace who I am and how, how I am and what I'm capable of. Yeah, I think that um, I've been on a, a personal and professional development journey um, for the last year and a half. Um, and I think that it started, it's, it's definitely a learned experience. It's something I have read a lot of books. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've gotten a coach. I have, you know, really worked through these issues. And I think that um, it started with a moment of deep sadness and emptiness on the inside when if you would have looked at my life from the outside, everything looked perfect. Great job, great career. Here I am, I'm trying cases, first chair, I'm a law professor. This was before I had the podcast, but you know, I had a lot of things going for me. Beautiful, healthy family, beautiful roof over my head. I wanted for nothing and I felt very empty inside and really sought answers as to why that was and what I could do about it. Um, and it, it started with reading The Big Leap. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that book by Gay Hendricks. I definitely recommend it. Um, and really analyzing what my purpose was, what my gifts and my talents were, and whether I was using them. Um, and what I have found is that true worthiness and fulfillment in life comes from believing in yourself, valuing yourself, and using the gifts that you uniquely have. And I think that it's going to look different for everyone. And sometimes that's focused on, you know, there are trial lawyers out there where that's their, they're using their gifts and their talents and they are getting fulfillment there. And there are also other pursuits, creative pursuits, other service um, or volunteering that we can do. But I think everybody has an opportunity to sort of do that 
personal development work, and I think it makes you a better lawyer. I think it makes you a better parent, a happier person, um, and sort of doing that journey. And it's a journey I, I, I continue to do, um, but I, if I can help one lawyer mom with my podcast on her journey in that way, um, then that is what really brings me a, a true sense of, of purpose and fulfillment. Beautifully said. I, uh, I've been on that sort of journey um, kind of for a different reason because I, I was involved in a pretty significant accident uh, in 2016 and that sort of led me to, I needed to, to change some things and wanted to, to just really become a little bit more introspective and look at what it is that really drives me and what I can do to give back. And um, it, it's it's a long and, and hard journey to really, you know, become truly accepting of yourself. And it's, it's great that that message is out there in this context for, you know, trial lawyers who are moms and, and trying to, to deal with all the issues that you've described because, you know, that, that's a message that is, is not being spoken loud enough. So I'm glad that you have, you've taken up that. Um, I'm curious being a professor, you know, what, why is it important to you to be a teacher of soon to be lawyers? I think there are several reasons why it's important. First and foremost, I want to help um, the next generation of lawyers be talented, ethical, good lawyers. Um, and if I can have a small part in that, then that feels like a worthy pursuit. And it's also really to pay it forward. Um, so even though I, I described a negative experience in law school, I actually had some amazing mentors at, in the trial advocacy program at American who not only taught me what it was to be a skilled litigator, um, but a confident and an ethical litigator. Um, and so having a small part in that uh, is, is very important to me. And it's fun. It is so much fun. Um, I, I get to teach a class about experts, as you mentioned at the start of the podcast, and you know, doing civil litigation you know, which I've done my whole career, that's a huge part of what we do in every case. Uh, and I just, I did not get a lot of training on that in law school or, you know, in early practice. It was sort of trial by fire and taking a bunch of depositions and learning by making mistakes. And so if I can provide law students with a little bit of guidance on how to work with experts, I think it's going to set them apart from their colleagues early in practice, and that's an exciting prospect. So um, in representing clients, especially if it's a serious damage case or a catastrophic case, and I, I've, I've asked this question to everybody that's been on the podcast because it's something that just is of interest. What are the top two or three things you do to empathize with that client to ultimately be able to convey that client's story to the jury? I think it first comes down to listening. Um, I work predominantly on nursing home negligence cases where my client is the surviving spouse or children of someone who was mistreated in a nursing home. Um, who at the end of their life was in pain, was treated with indignity, um, and 
the pain that families experience is so deep and so strong that I have found just creating that space where they know I listen, actively listen, and I want to know what happened and I want to know what they are feeling and what they are going through. Um, and, and I even felt this was important when I was doing car crashes, right? Um, this is not just a, a minor impact soft tissue case as the defense calls it, right? This is a person whose life has been upended. They've lost time, they've lost money, they've lost their ability to take care of their families in one way or another. Um, and just creating that space to listen and have them feel like they are truly heard. It's so simple and so many lawyers just uh, gloss over it and do so much talking at their clients. Um, but really that power of helping somebody feel heard and have a safe space with you. Um, I, I, that's number one, two, and three, right? Because then everything flows from there. You've created a connection, a true connection. It's not just, oh, I'm trying to employ these techniques so that my client tells me everything I need to know. Um, and I, I sometimes think in the busyness of law practice that lawyers don't stop to appreciate how important their role is. Somebody is in a crisis whatever that crisis is when we're doing plaintiff's trial work. And when you show up for someone in a crisis and hold space for them, that impacts them for the rest of their life, whether you win or lose. And we hope to win all these cases or get a great settlement, right? But even in the cases that I have lost, and you never forget the cases that you lose, um, I was moved and shocked that my clients took it as well as they did. Um, and the feedback was that they knew I poured my, my heart and soul into it and that like we had created that connection from the beginning. Um, and I, it starts with listening. It's interesting, yeah, I, I, I am interested in that because one of the things that I try to make sure everybody here at Synergy understands in terms of who they get to serve and, and what has happened to that person, you know, to to have them wind up on our doorstep is that idea of, you know, no matter how small of an accident, generally speaking, that's a pretty significant uh, event. And particularly, you know, a lot of the cases we deal with are more catastrophic in nature. That That's, you know, a, a huge traumatic event. And, you know, understanding the importance and the opportunity we have to serve people in a way that, um, is going to make a, a meaningful difference for them. That you know, being able to do that alongside the trial lawyers we work with, is to me that that idea of empathy is is just such an important concept, both on our side and on your side of the table. And I really like the way you articulated that. All right, so um, last question, a bit self-serving, I will admit. Uh, in settling personal injury cases, what are kind of the most difficult issues that you deal with? Is it Medicare? Is it dealing with liens? Is it trying to advise clients about government benefits if those are involved? What, what types of things do you find are most complicated when you're settling a case? 
It's often the liens, um, which is why what you do is so important. Um, and I think it varies. You know, I've had a, a breadth of experience with regard to um, very small claims to very catastrophic um, claims and death claims. And so, you know, each case is different. But I will say that when I was back doing the car crash cases, it also was um, healthcare providers who in addition to the liens, if there were outstanding bills, uh, who just would not take a reduction um, and could not understand that they were recovering sometimes double or more than what the client was set to recover. And I, I had to try some of those cases because the client was going to walk away with next to nothing. And so what's the incentive for them to uh, settle, it, you know, if I'm going to get next to nothing, well, then I have no risk in maybe getting nothing um, at trial. And so, you know, uh, I think that makes for difficult conversations with the clients and difficult decisions with the clients. Um, and, and definitely in the in the larger cases, the, the liens can be quite, quite large. And I practice in the Washington, D.C. and Baltimore area, and we've got a lot of federal employees um, where, you know, those FEBA liens, those can be brutal. Yeah. Unfortunately, the case law is on the side of the FEBA plans. And, you know, the, it's funny that you mentioned providers and, and hospitals, too. You know, we, we do a lot of work where we're being asked to analyze the reasonableness of a hospital bill because oftentimes those are so inflated that it's it when you see what the real true value of those services are and we do it for providers as well you know it's a good way to get leverage to negotiate with those folks particularly when it's based on what medicare accepts you know for for those rates uh but it's interesting you know that that you identify liens because i think that that's pretty universal amongst people that have been guests on the podcast that that is that's a difficult issue uh, for most trial lawyers because it really isn't an area of expertise unto itself when you've got FIBA, ERISA, you've got military, you've got Medicare, you've got Medicaid. I mean, there's there and all of them are different. None of them are the same. They they all play by different rules. So it's to expect a, a trial lawyer whose job really is to go out there and represent their client and hopefully either settle the case or go to trial and get recovery for injuries that they've sustained to, to be an expert in lien resolution is is totally unrealistic. But it's good job security, I suppose, for us. It certainly is. It certainly is. Well, so um, how can people get in touch with you? Talk about how they can listen to your podcast. If somebody wants to email you, how do they get in touch with you? And we'll, we'll put this into the show notes too. Thank you. I would love to connect with any of the listeners. I am quite active on LinkedIn. So find me, uh, Megan Whiteside, or I have a page for Mom Life and Law for my podcast. Um, you can find information about my podcast and the events that I host or I sponsor at momlifeandlaw.com. My email is info at momlifeandlaw.com for that side of things. Um, mwhiteside at brownbaron.com for my law practice. And I, you know, 
I'd love to keep this conversation going. So if there's anyone listening who has a great story to tell or is passionate about what they are doing as a lawyer mom and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, I'd love to meet you. I love, like you do here, Jason, having a platform to share stories is a really powerful thing. We know storytelling is, you know, it's the foundation of our work um, and, it, and it's an important way to drive change. And so I can't wait to connect with anyone who wants to do so. Well, thanks, Megan, for being my guest today on Trial Lawyer Review, and we'll see everybody on the next episode. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.